Welcome. You are listening to the Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm your host, Meryl Arnett, and my passion is making meditation accessible and enjoyable. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a guided meditation. If you would like to access these meditation practices as standalone audio files for your daily practice, please subscribe to my newsletter at merylarnett.com. It's free and you'll receive a new mini meditation each week, along with behind the scenes content and bonus material for each podcast episode. All right, let's grab a cup of tea, a comfy seat, and settle in for today's practice. Hi, friends. How are you? Um, I am recording this, and you're going to be listening to this, actually, as we are in the middle of an unbelievably horrific crisis that we're witnessing between Palestine and Israel. And it has been more than a week of so much hurt and fear and worry And as I'm sure you know, because you have listened to me teach many meditation classes over the years, I care very, very much about our willingness to engage with everything, the vast spectrum of emotion that is part of us as human beings. I care very much that we're awake that we're willing to pay attention, to bear witness to, to stand up for. And that is hard. It is hard to do that and be okay in the same time. And I've had on the books for quite a while, actually, an interview with James Cruz, a poet that I originally had on the podcast over a year ago. He's written several anthologies of poetry, as well as essays. And today, as I woke up and I sat on my couch with my coffee, I was going through a bit more of his most recent book, which is The Wonder of Small Things, Poems of Peace and Renewal. And as you'll hear me say in the episode in just a few minutes, it brought me to my knees with how much I needed these poems in this moment. And they are not about world crises. They are not even directly about grief or fear. They are about the absolute beauty and sanctity of everyday things. And it was such a balm, such a salve that I decided um, to record and get this episode out as fast as possible. So very little editing, forgive me if there are noises. I'm in my kitchen, I'm not even in my studio, but I I want to get this to you because I deeply believe that it will be a balm for you too in this moment. Not a distraction, not a numbing mechanism, not an excuse to not engage, but a way to shore ourselves up, to soothe ourselves so that we can continue to pay attention. We can continue to stay awake. 
So if you would like to hear a little bit more about James himself, about this really important and interesting intersection of poetry and meditation, there's a whole nother episode. I'll link it in the show notes. In this episode, James and I jump right in to the conversation because I wanted to bring you as much goodness, beauty, awe as I possibly could. I hope you enjoy. I hope it is a salve. Please check the show notes. There's links to everything we talk about, including this book, which I cannot recommend enough in this moment. Thanks for listening. James, I am so happy to be talking to you today. Thank you for coming back to the Mindful Minute. Well, thank you so much for having me again, Meryl. It's an honor. Yeah, I was um, sitting on the couch this morning, reading through your newest anthology of poems, and I have it right here, The Wonder of Small Things, Poems of Peace and Renewal. Mm. And I have to tell you that I could have wept. I mean, I felt that I might just start bawling from the beauty of the poems that I was reading, from the simplicity of the poems I was reading, and from the way it landed just as a balm in a moment that I really, really needed it. So thank you for this anthology. It's (laughs) beyond timely. Well, you're very welcome. And thank you for those kind words about the poems. Um, You know, I I usually say that I make the books that I most need. And um, when I was putting this book together, um, my mother was dying. Mm. Both of my grandmothers were dying. Their war in Ukraine had just begun, was raging amid, you know, other atrocities, other difficulties, and, you know, personal and more universal. And I just think that for for me, especially, poetry has become a refuge over the years. And I think that it would feel that way even if I didn't write it, you know, that I need clear, accessible ways to remember that this broken world of ours is also beautiful and that we can feel grief and wonder at the same time. And in fact, you know, they so often coexist. I think that if we're staying awake to the grief and sorrow that is just part of the human condition, we also get to stay awake to the wonder and the joy that Mm. are available to us as well. I so feel that, and I so appreciate you bringing that awareness to us. And, you know, I, in the past several series that I've offered when I teach meditation classes, we've been talking a lot actually about grief specifically and ways that we can use our meditation practice to help us hold grief and experience grief or anxiety or fear or whatever big emotion may be present. And what's interesting to me, at least, when I read these poems, is that it almost feels like I'm coming in sideways. Like I don't need, you know, when I was reading this morning, I wasn't saying, let me sit down and tap into my grief. Let me, I wasn't saying anything other than I'm going to have a cup of coffee and I'm going to read a little bit. And the moment I did I immediately was able to tap into 
what I was feeling. And what's interesting to me is I often notice with meditation students, when we talk about feeling emotions, sometimes the response is, I don't know how. I don't know what I'm feeling. And I wonder if you have the same experience or thoughts around poetry words even as a way to help us become embodied, which is so interesting because you, I would sort of assume it doesn't. And yet my physical experience is that it does. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting how it works. You know, something that seems as abstract as language or just, you know, words on a page can actually bring us more deeply into our bodies. I, I think that's part of the magic of poetry that it almost works like a spell sometimes mm -hmm. to, you know, just awaken us to ourselves, our lived experience, the actual world around us. And what, what came up as you were describing this is just the notion that I, I think that most of us, unless we're dissociating from our bodies, which does happen for sure um, with people, but I think most of us do feel we do have those emotions. It's just very difficult to first pause and then name them and give language to what is arising. And I think that poetry holds space for everything. You know, poems don't take up much space on the page, but I think because they've been labored over, they're somehow, they become these, these sacred containers for the human experience. And, you know, past, present, future, there's some alchemy that happens so that they're able to hold what the writer is feeling and maybe is having trouble naming. I mean, I, I write every single day and I can't tell you how many times I'm very surprised by what comes out and I say, oh, that's what I'm feeling. I had no idea, <laughs> you know? I mean, I had some idea, obviously, because the mm. poem passed through, but maybe it, I think poetry comes from this subconscious place. It comes from a, you know, below the surface place that um, just gives people access to something that they have trouble naming. And so that is part of the pleasure of it. That's part of the difficulty of it at times. And I love what you said, Meryl, about um, feeling like you were coming in the side door, because I feel like that's so true with so many of the poems that I include in my anthologies is that on the surface, they might be about kindness, they might be about joy or gratitude. And yet, if, if a poem is really working at the deepest level, it's probably touching on sorrow. It's probably kind of containing this flavor of grief at the same time. And, and I, I think this was another conversation I had with a poet, Jacqueline Susskind, who's also in this book. Um, and we were talking about how, I don't know if this is true elsewhere, but I live in Vermont and it seems like no one actually uses their front door. They all use the side door. And it's because we have snow, we have the muddy season, you know, and so we come in the side door that leads to the mudroom because that's, you know, that's the messy place, right? And so I think that we, we kind of, with these poems, you come in from the side door and you come as you are, you come as messy or as tidy as you are, and the poems just do their work on you. And they sort of lead you and teach you and and give language to what you might not otherwise be able to voice. And I do think they're like meditations in that way. And you 
in all of your anthologies, I believe you include reflective pauses. You ask us to stop. And it, it was funny because this morning I hit one of the reflective pauses and I was like, am I going to just go buy this or am I going to sit down and actually write the answer? And you feel that tug because you know something real is going to show up, right? Oh, they're no. They're very... There, I think this is a personal opinion, of course, but I think they're very well done writing prompts. They they were unexpected to me. It was not like write three things you're grateful for. You know, it mm-hmm. they again, let's use the same metaphor. It the prompts come in from the side too, I felt mm-hmm. like. I really enjoy them. Well, I'm so glad that you did and that you you find some resonance with those reflective pauses. It's just something that I, I've learned from being a teacher. I, I've been teaching for about 20 years now, and every poem is really a prompt, you know, especially every good poem, I think. Um, every poem that touches on everyday experience or that is more accessible, I think of it as a doorway. Or um, Mark Nepo has this phrase I love, lyrical thresholds. Mm. So, it, Yeah, right? Oh, I love that. <laughs> So they're just these openings that we can step through and, you know, we might need some help. And so oftentimes we look back at the poem that kind of prompted these, these reflective pauses and say, well, what if you use the title? What if you use that beginning sentence for a writing prompt of your own? I think even though poems that don't carry reflective pauses with them in this book, so many of them lend themselves to you know, if you could just pause after and say, you know, like the very first poem in the book is The Piece of Wild Things by Wendell All-time Berry. Very, favorite. Right, All-time famous favorite. poem. But even that, you could just pause, like, what are the wild things? You know, those physical sensations that they bring us, the sound of the wild geese in the autumn, the sound of leaves crunching underfoot, what allows us to come back to the body, to come back to the present moment what are those wild things that bring us back and and that's it you know i think it's just learning to um appreciate poetry i think that is not a puzzle in and of itself you know we're so used to that from maybe high school college um well-meaning teachers who wanted us to dig deeper and you know puzzle out the poems but i, I think the longer you stay with these poems the more they reward you but you can get so much just reading through them once. And, and you can use each one of them as a writing prompt if if you were so inclined, if you're a person who keeps a journal. I lately I've I've kept a gratitude journal for a while. I've done a kindness journal, but lately I find myself just recording moments of wonder, little moments of awe. Like what just stops me? What makes me gasp? What makes me you know, catch my breath a little bit, like, oh, I've never seen that before. Um, so these poems definitely have done a lot of work on me too. Yeah, they, you know, the wonder of small things. And as we're recording this, we're witnessing just absolute horrific crisis between Israel and Palestine. And it's interesting because I I have found myself in meditation circles, having a conversation over and over again 
responding to the statement, well, I don't watch the news because it's too upsetting. I have to take care of myself. And, and my response is, I also don't, you know, quote unquote, watch the news, meaning mm-hmm. I don't set myself in the middle of a 24 seven news cycle. I don't, ups- I don't have updates on my phone. I am conscientious about when and where I consume what's happening in the world. And the work of meditation is the work of waking up and looking. It's not the work of turning away. And so as I was reading this, these poems this morning, as particularly, it just hit me so hard this morning for some reason. Um, as I was reading these poems, what I was noticing was as I felt that sense of salve of balm, it was as if it was shoring me up so that I could continue to engage rather than distract or disconnect or protect. It wasn't that. It was almost a bolstering. And and I actually want to give an example. So one of the poems this morning that just struck me so hard. Let me see. I jotted down the page. 52. Um, Ribolita mm-hmm. by Donna oh, Hilbert. Yeah. <laughs> And it's this poem about making soup. (laughs) So beautiful. And actually, if you have the book in front of you, I'll ask you to read it. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I love this. Yeah, so this is Ribolita by Donna Hilbert. I praise the way you save stale bread left on the shelf too long. Rinds of Parmesan tough to grate. Old greens not crisp enough for salad but fine for soup, reboiled from what's on hand. I love the way you salvage bruised tomato, sprouting onion, imperfect squash, laying no morsel to mold, nothing to waste, filling each space with aroma of soup, saying supper, manja, come eat, come safely, come home. I could cry. And so, so powerful. And I just, my own personal, I love to cook. And I found myself in the kitchen so much this week, more so than normal, turning to things that felt very simple, very comforting. And that last line of come eat, come safely, come home. I was like, oh, that's what I'm doing. It helped me name something. And it named that sense of um, resilience, maybe, right? To keep engaging. So I'm a little bit lost in my conversation, but. (laughs) I think it's all relevant. I really do. Um, There is a sense of resilience. I mean, that those very last words come home, feel so resonant. I think that's what makes us so emotional. Whereas, you know, on the surface, this poem is just about making soup, you know, an Italian soup where you use what's on hand. Ribolita means reboiled, right? Um, and yet it is also about coming home to the moment, coming home to ourselves, coming home to our actual houses and appreciating perhaps those of us who don't have to feel uncertain and fearful about that, you know, the way that we can have appreciation and grief and sorrow for others in the world who are not in that same situation. I think all of this is contained 
in this poem, whether that was Donna's, you know, Donna's a friend. I know it probably wasn't her, you know, intention necessarily, but again, that's part of that magic of poetry is that read in the right moment, it can hold so many things at once because Mm. it has so much space at the center. Um, So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right just in terms of talking about meditation and even writing itself being not about turning away from, not about distracting ourselves from what's going on. It's about finding refuge, deciding when and where it's right for us to engage so that we can engage, so that we can show up for ourselves first and then the other people that we know who are disturbed by this and who you know are having a tough time processing what they're hearing seeing reading you know mm-hmm. it's it's very difficult right now um so that's how i think of these books and these poems you know you'll notice that not a lot of them do deal head on with let's say war or current events or violence or things like that and that is intentional i don't see it as a a way of ignoring what's going on in the world. But I think that we need, sort of like meditation, we need times when we have a bit of timelessness, when we can step away from the world, refill our our own inner wells, and then return to the world. Like you said, bolstered. I love that word. It's sort of like, you know, armoring up, but but in, in a vulnerable way, you mm. know, in a in a very real way that allows us to stay open. Like I'm I'm lifted, I'm filled, and yet I'm also still open to the world. So that's how I see these poems. And, you know, I hear from people all the time who say they read the poems before bed, which I think is so interesting, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and what a great practice to do that instead of reading the news mm-hmm. or looking at alerts on your phone or, you know, um, streaming a show even, like just having that practice of stepping away from the world or when you first wake up, like I do, I don't reach for my phone, I can't open my email. You know, the world has to be kept at bay for a certain amount of time so that I can be prepared to show up and so that I have, so that I can have my own spiritual and meditation practice that bolsters me. I, you named something so important that I want to pay a little bit more attention to, which is that all of these poems feel like they deal with the most mundane things that well, everyone that I have read to date has felt like, right, I literally have a coffee cup sitting right here, or I absolutely have leaves falling off trees right now at this very second. They are so grounded in the reality of everydayness, it seems. Hmm. And yet there's something so, I think, particularly maybe in a moment of pure heartbreak, there's something so valuable in being like, oh, this one mug right here is also a source of like I love um I just read it something about gratitude or oh here I have it marked already because that's where I stopped. The only way I know to love the world by Julia. Can you help me with Baron, that? Baron Bacher. 
Fehrenbacher. It's not just a cup of coffee, but the warm hum of hello, an invitation to wake up, to sip, to say thank you. And it goes on from there. But I mean, that's there every morning. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And we just have to slow down and notice it. I think one thing that I've noticed among folks that I follow, folks in my community, you know, even even people who tend to be fairly level-headed, fairly open to the world, there's this sense of apologizing for joy or celebration or almost like feeling guilty for pausing, for talking about beauty or poetry or mindfulness or meditation at a time when you know, those things would definitely be a luxury for people who are in a, a refugee situation or for people whose relatives have been kidnapped. You know, it's, and, and I, I understand that feeling absolutely, you know. Um, but again, it's about, I think, allowing things to coexist, that we do still have the reality of everydayness and that comfort is something that is just simply there. You know, we haven't earned it necessarily. We don't have to do anything to earn it. It's just there for us to say, you know, I honor you. I appreciate you. Just like Julia, the warm hum of hello. What a beautiful phrase to describe a simple cup of coffee or a cup of tea, you know, whatever we can do for ourselves. And I think at times like this, it's just like in in times of personal crises or grief, those small, simple things are the things that call to us. They're the things that we realize we would miss if we were in a similar situation of violence or under threat or faced with losing our own lives or someone that we love. It's those small things that that we always come back to. It's not the larger moments or the achievements or anything like that. And I think that's why I am personally so drawn to these poems because in my own journeys with grief, in my own uh, mindfulness and meditation practice over the years, I have just noticed how the small daily things really just call me back, welcome me back, because the human condition is forgetting, right? Like that's just the, the constancy that we're with. We're going to lose our center. We're going to lose our attention, we're going to be distracted, and yet these things are all around us that that we still have access to. Is there a particular poem in this anthology that really stands out to you in this moment? Mm. There is actually. Um, it's called, let's see, let's see if I can find it here. Um, Yeah, it's Lost and Found, which is on page 91 for anybody who's following along. <laughs> um, and this is a poem by Laura Foley. I, I love to share this, just a, a tiny poem, as so many of these are. They're just very small moments. But I love to share this with um, groups that I'm speaking to or writing workshops because somehow it brings us back to a time when we had this innocence, especially as children, 
And the word immersion comes to mind when we were able to kind of lose ourselves in something beautiful or wondrous. So this is Lost and Found by Laura Foley. On my sophomore science field trip to the rocky Maine coast, I sat captivated by a tidal pool, a little village of crawling crabs, snails, starfish darting, a sea anemone appearing to sing. I stayed so long I forgot the rising tide, my teachers, classmates waiting on the bus. On the exam, I couldn't calculate the pitch of waves or chemical composition of anything, but I knew how to lose myself in the world of tiny shifting things. That's so beautiful. Mm. And lovely how the title Lost and Found takes a completely different meaning after you've read the poem. That's right. <laughs> so right. Yeah. Who's lost and who's found, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And it's just like what I said about forgetting, like there is a way in which it's pleasurable to forget ourselves sometimes and to forget our worries for the world, our fears. And I'd often find that out in the natural world, um, you know, just stepping outside for a certain amount of time, whether it's watering the plants or just noticing what's changed with the season. And even, you know, 15, 20 minutes, whatever I can afford, allows me to just come back inside with this renewed sense of just beauty, okayness, you know. Um, I, I'm not sure that we can any of us feel terribly uplifted at difficult times like this, but there can be a sense of just okayness, like, mm -hmm. gosh, like I feel a little better. You know, I may not be um, completely happy or joyful, but I think even that measure of a little bit more um, presence is really helpful. That is truly such a huge thing. And it's so interesting that it is created by perhaps such small things. But to be able to say I'm okay amidst the hardest moments is profound. I think that's profound. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I also think we need examples mm. of people who have done that. And, mm. you know, that's that's sort of the barometer for a lot of the poems that I chose because I have this sense that even poems that end in a more positive place don't necessarily begin there where there is, like I said before, that flavor of grief, sorrow, or difficulty that's maybe um, right behind the, the immediate action of the poem. And I know that for myself, I've written a lot of poems that have lifted people up that began with me writing out of a place of difficulty or grief, sadness, um, you know, and I think sometimes we can let the world wake us up, even if we can't do it ourselves, you know, and it's that piece of doing the reflective pause, whether you're doing one of my exercises 
or just giving yourself permission to step outside, pause, even looking out the window for longer than you might normally do is an exercise that can be really useful. Like I'm thinking of a poem that I wrote that's in here called Awe, and it it happened during a power outage. Like I was not feeling awe during this ice storm that, you know, caused the power outage and like heating coffee on the stove, lighting (laughs) candles, you know, walking around like, why do I live in Vermont again? This winter is terrible. Um, And yet there was awe for light striking the ice just the right way. So they, you know, these icy branches hanging down looked like chandeliers Mm. or this sleeve of ice that had slid from one of the branches and was resting on top of the snow. It's like, okay, well, I've never seen that before, you know? So there was this sense of wonder and awe that crept in anyway, even though I wasn't in that place to begin with, especially when I first sat down to write. So I think it's just like meditation. You know, I can sit down, meditate like, oh, this is going to be terrible. Like, (laughs) you know, I don't feel very present. My mind is going 50 million different directions at once. And yet afterwards, even if it is that sliver of okayness, it's like, okay, you know, I, I feel different probably better, almost always better. Um, But even if it's, if I can't concede that betterness, it's like, well, the feeling has changed and there's Mm. something to that. Will you read us awe? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Awe. It's a shiver that climbs the trellis of the spine each tingle a bright white morning glory breaking into blossom beneath the skin. It can happen anywhere, anytime, even finding this sleeve of ice worn by a branch all morning, now fallen on a bed of snow. You can choose to pause, pick it up, Hold the cold thing in your hand or not. Few tell us that wonder and awe are decisions we make daily, hourly, minute by minute in the tiny offices of the heart, tilting the head to look up at every tree turned into a chandelier by light striking ice in just the right way. Awe as a decision. I think that's Mm -hmm. the word that I heard. I there is something in that very conscious way of looking at the world. I wonder, I'm very curious about what your morning practice looks like. Would you share a little bit about that? How how you practice? Yeah, well, it varies a little bit each day, but generally it's the same. So I do wake up, I have that cup of coffee we mentioned earlier. <laughs> I usually wake up very early um, because I'm I'm married to a farmer. And so we kind of, you know, we're going with the cycles of the seasons. And um, so I'm up early before the rest of the world is awake, making coffee. And then I usually have some sort of sacred reading. Um, might be poems by Mary Oliver, books by uh, Mark Nepo, um, 
Anne Lamott, uh, Tara Brock, you know, mm-hmm. some favorites. And I find that I, I like to begin by reading because it's almost a practice of listening. So what's there, what gets sparked. And then I do what Julia Cameron, the creative writing teacher, has called morning pages. So I usually write two to three pages by hand in my very plain notebook. And oftentimes those will lead me down a rabbit hole of a poem or an essay or not, nothing. You know, it's sometimes it is just complaining or processing or having an idea, something like that, describing what happened. Often it is like, oh, I'm feeling anxious about this thing that's coming up. Um, That's a refrain that I notice again and again. And then after that is usually when I sit in meditation. And I do try to make space to meditate a few times throughout the day, but definitely that morning sit um, is sort of untouchable. It has to happen in the morning. Um, and, And then usually join my husband for breakfast. That's when I might start looking at the phone, checking email, things like that. Mm. I love that. And I, I'm, I, my morning is similar, except that I reverse your whole process <laughs> and I start with meditation and mm. then I write and then I read and I'm going to flip it and see how it feels. Mm. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm interested to do that. I've tried it the other way too um, for a while, for quite a while, actually, my husband and I were waking up and meditating together almost first thing. Sometimes we still do that if we're on vacation, um, just as a way of greeting the day together. But yeah, just I, I think it's it's interesting to shift things and see mm-hmm. how that works, because I noticed it did change my writing when I was meditating first thing. And yeah, and now... The writing is a little different because I'm not maybe as fully awake or fully conscious um, as I would be after meditation. So, mm. yeah. It's so interesting. I just, as an aside, I was having a conversation with another meditator yesterday and he said, oh, I had a little break in the middle of my afternoon and I did a meditation practice and it was one of those just absolutely memorable practices so deep. Mm. And I said, oh, it's so interesting because if I meditate in the afternoon, it's literally like a nervous system reset. There's no depth to it. I'm I'm going. Mm. My deep practice always feels like it's in the morning. And it was such a fabulous conversation simply because it's interesting to hear how, how different we might be in different moments of the day and what works for one person might with the tiniest flip to write before or write after can change something very profound. So um, I, I love the invitation for listeners, for you to explore what your practice looks like and when and the order that you do things. in. that's really interesting, all with the idea, circling back to your poem, all with the idea that I really believe these practices are what give us the awakeness to see the sleeve of ice or to see the coffee or the leaves or whatever it may be with an eye that is looking for awe or ready to perceive awe, maybe. I'm not quite sure. I love that. With an eye that is looking for awe or ready to perceive it. I think 
both are true. You know, you can be looking for it and not find it, you know, because you can't always force it, right? Um, but I think to have that re receptivity is so pivotal and and for all of us to explore how that receptivity arises for us. You know, I think it's been so interesting to follow the journey of these anthologies. You know, I also write my own poetry. I also write essays. And these have been really special books because I just feel like they are lenses into my own practice, my own slow growth as a meditator and kind of how that has worked on me over the years. Just, you know, what I notice and what grabs me in other people's work and other poems that I choose to gather and the different concerns and, you know, focuses, themes that that kind of call to me over time, you know, whether it's gratitude and hope, kindness and joy, and this one, it's wonder, wonder, awe, peace as well, in this one especially. Um, so I think that receptivity is everything. And I really do think that whatever practices work for us, they are what helps set us up to, to really be able to hold on to those pivotal moments from our day. Mm -hmm. um, whether we're doing that in writing, sharing it with someone else, or, you know, some sort of sacred conversation, it just feels very important to stay awake to all the small things and large things that are around us. But again, it's those small things that I think just mean more and more to me over time as I kind of keep with my own practice. Mm. James, as I'm thinking about a practice that we might leave listeners with for this particular moment, what's coming to mind for me is Sorrow Is Not My Name by Ross Gay and the reflective pause you have afterwards. If you have something else in mind, by all means, please feel free to share it. But I'd love if maybe you'd offer a poem and a reflection for listeners just to help us with wonder in this really tough moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have to find the Ross Gay. Do you have that one marked? Mm, uh, I do actually, yeah. Um, set 27. So yeah, this is Sorrow Is Not My Name by Ross Gay after a poem by Gwendolyn Brooks. No matter the pull toward brink, no matter the florid deep sleep awaits, there is a time for everything. Look, just this morning a vulture nodded his red grizzled head at me and I looked at him admiring the sickle of his beak. Then the wind kicked up, and after arranging that good suit of feathers, he up and took off, just like that. And to boot, there are on this planet alone something like two million naturally occurring sweet things, some with names so generous as to kick the steel from my knees, agave, persimmon, stickball, the purple okra I bought for two bucks at the market. Think of that. 
the long night, the skeleton in the mirror, the man behind me on the bus taking notes. Yeah, yeah. But look, my niece is running through a field calling my name. My neighbor sings like an angel, and at the end of my block is a basketball court. I remember my colors green. I'm spring. So I really see this poem, you know, I, I love that kind of aside that he has in the middle of the poem, like listing the skeleton in a mirror, the guy kind of mumbling to himself on the bus. Yeah, yeah, these are disturbing things. These are difficult things facing our own mortality. Um, the, the florid deep sleep that awaits as he describes it. And yet, you know, there are these other things, you know, his niece running through a field. There are these sweet things. There's the purple okra he bought for next to nothing at the farmer's market. So I think, again, he's in his very Roske way that we have all come to love. He's turning us toward these other things while still acknowledging and holding space for the difficult, you know, the utmost of which I think is our own mortality. And so the invitation that I have for this poem is to begin writing, reflecting with your own words, no matter, and articulate some of the fearful things that you feel might be keeping you from delight right now. So no matter the war in Palestine and Israel, no matter the scenes of rubble, no matter the small boy in Illinois, that we know whose life was taken because of his ethnicity and articulate some of these things, see where that leads you. It may not lead you to a place of delight, but I wonder if we might explore what can coexist in a single moment, you know, the grief and the wonder, even if it's just wondering that we're all still alive, that we have these plain things that that are still existing in our lives that we still have access to. And um, and I really, I really say let your intuition take over as you write or reflect from a place of reverence for the simplest things that you witness. Mm -hmm. You know, I think at this time when we are exposed to so much news of the world, so many scenes that we might not normally see, um, we have to stay present in our own dailiness and in our own lives too in order to just bring ourselves back and to hold space for all of that um, because sorrow is not our only name it's part of our name for sure it's part of what it is to be human but it's not our only name james thank you so much for giving us some tools, a salve to stay awake and stay present and hold on to some okayness also. I'm really grateful for you today. Thank you so much, Meryl. I'm so grateful for this conversation and for the sacred space that you've created here. Yeah. Um, so for listeners that perhaps want to pick up this book, and I, I have to tell you again, I am so grateful I was holding it in my hand this morning. The Wonder of Small Things, Poems of Peace and Renewal. And it's out now. Yes, we can get this. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So get it at your local bookshop. And um, I also want to name James, I noticed you have a weekly newsletter, the weekly pause. And so um, my assumption is if we like these reflective pauses in the book, and we want more of that, we can subscribe to your newsletter. Is there anywhere else we can or should be paying attention to you? Sure. Yeah. The newsletter is a great way to stay in touch. And you can just sign up for that at my website, jamescruz.net. And then I also run, for those who are interested in writing, I run a monthly writing community via Zoom that people can subscribe to. It's called The Monthly Pause. Mm. Um, and you can find that at monthlypause.com, also on my website. Obviously, I'm obsessed with this idea of pausing regularly. Yeah, yeah. And it it shows what it does for you as you read through these anthologies you've created. So thank you for encouraging all of us to do so. Um, Listeners, all of these links will be in the show notes. I hope this episode and these poems serve you well. Thank you again, James. Such a pleasure. Thank you, Meryl. Thanks for listening to The Mindful Minute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving me a review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps others to find the show. And let's face it, we could definitely use more meditators in this world. The Mindful Minute is recorded on Muskogee land and produced with the support of Madeline Day Production Management and Brianna Nielsen Virtual Assistance. To join my live classes, ask questions, or learn more about my teacher trainings, please visit MerrillArnett.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you guys next week.